there are a thousand different errors we can make in understanding uh, the connections between the old and the new. Uh, Most of our errors come uh, in uh, failing to recognise the connections and instead uh, seeing them as books and documents that are fundamentally disconnected. Uh, And uh, and as a sort of a framework, I would say that that uh, that is one of the biggest errors we can make. It is the same God who it speaks of. Uh, He is the author of both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, And there is a continuing storyline that hangs like a thread all the way through. Uh, And and at the centre is our Lord Jesus. Uh, And we have in the Old Testament things that tell us and prepare us for his coming. Uh, And in the New Testament we have uh, his life uh, and reflections on what it means uh, to live in light of him uh, having come and having to made sacri- having made sacrifice for sins, uh, but as I say, it can be a bit of a tangle. Uh, it can be um, the playground of all kinds of errors. And first of all, I do want to recognise that, like with any other passage of the Bible, some people will be more familiar than others with the themes that pop up in Hebrews nine and ten. All this stuff about sacrifice, etc. For some of us, that's brand new. For some, it's very familiar stuff. So I just want to take a minute from the top to try and untangle some of the words that get used a lot in this passage. So uh, there's all sorts of things and themes that come up again and again. Uh, This is a word map that I've pulled from the passage uh, of some of the words that get particularly repeated. So I'm going to rip out just a few of them here and, and kind of group them together in ways that I hope is helpful. So first of all... Offering sacrifices and blood seems to be uh, one of the themes that carries all of this through. Uh, We have uh, a story like, so Hebrews is written uh, in the New Testament time after the coming of Jesus and after his uh, having ascended into heaven. Uh, And it's reflecting on, uh, on all this data from the Old Testament. Uh, about these offerings, sacrifices and blood and, and uh, this, was, this was a way of life, this was a rhythm uh, that was weekly, seasonal, annual uh, of people coming to offer sacrifices of blood. Uh, one of the words that um, makes it into the map is goats. That was one of the animals that, uh, that was killed, also bulls and sheep, uh, in some cases doves and small birds uh, but animals were the offerings. Uh, They existed because of this sort of disconnect between what is holy and what is sinful. All of this is designed to bring together the fact that God is holy and we are sinful. And so the sacrifices were given by God uh, as as a way for people to make sacrifice for their sins, to recognise in the shedding of innocent blood the fact that they deserve to die for their own sins and that the penalty for sin is actually bloodshed. But that God in his grace has given them a way uh, of shedding the blood of another. Uh, As unfair or unjust as that might seem, it is gracious and merciful uh, that God in his holiness has made a way for people who are sinful to be united to him. And all of this comes under these words that get used in the in the New Testament. Law actually is the big one uh, that gets used in a lot of the other books of the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. But here in Hebrews, covenant seems to be the big word. Oftentimes, when the New Testament talks about law, it's not talking about uh, police or lawyers or even right and wrong. Actually, 
you, or, or, you know, good deeds versus evil deeds. Usually what it's talking about uh, is uh, this, uh, this religious ritual of giving sacrifices uh, as, a, as an offering for sin. Uh, but in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, he talks about this as being covenant. Uh, this was the way God had given uh, a covenant, an agreement between God and man. And all of this is to point to Christ. Uh, in the time of the Old Testament, uh, it was goats and bulls and others that were giving their life. But in the, and all of this uh, was to produce faith in people so that they would see a God who is faithful and gracious to supply uh, a way for sins to be forgiven. And, and uh, the road was being paved for when Christ would come and give his own life and they could see uh, all of this unfold. Now, I said that's all the tangle, and maybe I've tangled it some more. So I'm going to just do the same thing, only in a slightly different order. So we're going to start from a different place. Holy and sinful. We have a God who is holy. We have us and people who are uh, sinful. And uh, I described uh, several weeks ago this sort of dynamic where there is, a, there is an anxious intersection um, there's an anxious meeting place between humanity and the gods, which exists in every expression of religion and everything, uh, where people are anxious about what it would mean to confront a God or what it would mean uh, to have a God who is displeased with you. And the Bible says that, uh, that we have a God who is holy, fundamentally good and pure and perfect, and we have sinned. And because of this anxious intersection, this problem that exists between us and a holy God, he has given us, in his grace, a covenant, a law, a way for us to draw near to him and to do it with confidence. And that way was through offerings, sacrifices and blood of things like goats, but these things were actually, um, actually representatives, representations of what Christ would do in time to come. So that's it. The Old Testament makes sense now uh, and the New. In some ways, we've kind of already made it. But let's have a look at Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9 opens with a walkthrough of the tabernacle, uh, which was the tent that God had uh, given the people in, in this framework of the covenant. He'd given them a tent where they could come and meet with God. So if you were a priest, this is pulling from uh, verses 1 to 5 of Hebrews chapter 9. If you were a priest under the old regime or the covenant, you could go through the curtain into the holy place. That's that sort of first room that you can see cut away. On your left would be a lampstand and on your right, a table with consecrated bread. If you keep walking, you'll come to another curtain, the second curtain. And if you were to pass through that curtain, which you wouldn't, but if you were, you would come to the most holy place. Holy place? Most holy place. And you might see the Ark of the Covenant, which is a golden chest. And above it, uh, and, and sort of uh, worked into it, uh, these crafted cherubim, uh, these heavenly creatures with many wings each, which are guarding the Ark. And if you were to look inside the Ark, which you wouldn't, you would find the stone tablets, uh, Aaron's staff, and a golden container holding the manna. That was the... Uh, the last surviving piece of the bread that the Israelites ate on, on their journey from, uh, in the wilderness out of, Exodus, uh, out of Egypt. And you can read all of this uh, in Exodus 25, by the way. It might be a helpful thing to have uh, open when you go home side by side with Hebrews chapter 9. 
Uh, Exodus 25 is like the aerial floor plan. If you've ever shopped online for a house, Exodus 25 is the aerial. There's this and this and this and these are the elements all thereabouts. Uh, Hebrews 9 is kind of like the video or the virtual walkthrough. Uh, it's in order. You go through the first ten, uh, uh, curtain and there's this and that and then the next curtain and there's this and that. But do you form the picture that there's a progression from unholy or ordinary to more holy? There's these increasing layers of holiness and the more holy the less accessible first you've got the holy place where only priests can go then the most holy place where only the great high priest can go and only once a year and then you've got the ark where no one is allowed to go you've probably seen indiana jones right um you can't open the ark so verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews chapter 9 tell us that while only priests are allowed in the holy place only the high priest may go and only ever once each year uh, into the most holy place Uh, and only after having first sacrificed a bull and he goes in splashing the blood of the bull in front of him as a as an offering saying you know blood has already been shed so please don't take mine Uh, there's other hoops not mentioned in hebrews chapter 9 by the way that if you were to read uh, back through exodus and leviticus i would tell you of other things a thorough ceremonial washing with water would occur first to the priest And then he would have to change his clothes into layers of priestly garb, precious, holy clothes. Uh, And then he would walk into the most holy place. This is this annual ritual where he would go in carrying smoking incense, which creates both a smell to please God and also like a shield, a smoke shield, so that you can't be seen because you want to be hidden from God's presence. Again, you need layers between you and God. There's even rumours Uh, And I don't know if this is true or not, but there's rumours that uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement when the great high priest would uh, would dress up and jump through all these hoops and do all these rituals uh, and go into the most holy place, there's rumours that they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he would have dropped dead in there so that they could retrieve the body by dragging him out because no one else is allowed to go in after. And then again, remember, there's these layers of holiness. There's the ark and there's not a soul who is permitted to look inside of that. And then across chapters 9 and 10, uh, which we're doing together today, the author of this letter to the Hebrews rattles off a bunch of reasons why this arrangement is ultimately lacking. Here's a few of them. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. Uh, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. There's a there's still a barrier in existence under this regime verse 9 according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper verse 10 uh, again under this arrangement these offerings they deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation uh, but they don't do a thing in chapter 10 the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Uh, The the law, the covenant, this arrangement was just a shadow, not the true form, just a shadow. It can never, reading on in verse 1, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. From Jesus' own lips, God doesn't desire these things. Then why did he tell them to do it? We'll talk about that. 
And then verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It would be a grave error, clearly, to return to that old covenant, uh, to, to long to go back to that old way. And yet, you know, there's something appealing and tactile about it. Uh, and, uh, and for the people, the original audience, there's something appealing as well because the social pressure of people who have come from this way, Jewish people who have come to Christ, whose families probably still worship Christ, who, uh, whose families and community uh, still to some extent have the protection of the Roman Empire as long as they're Jewish, the temptation would be to return to this old way. But for us... We kind of think, gee, why, why would anyone want to go back to something so cumbersome and difficult and costly, especially when it's ultimately deficient? It seems quite obvious to us. But that's our privilege uh, and a little bit of our deficiency as well. If we, if, uh, if we can't see why this would be a temptation for them, then, uh, then we need to do a little bit of work to, to try and understand uh, why so much ink is spilled by the author uh, to make these explanations. Let me tell you, though, uh, about a stupid mistake that Christians sometimes make. In this, you know, untangling the web between Old and New Testament and how do these things meet, here's one stupid mistake that Christians sometimes make. When I say stupid, I mean it kindly, because maybe you're in this category even now. But not for much longer, I hope. People do sometimes think that in the time before Jesus, the Jews were saved from their sins by making all the appropriate sacrifices. And that in the time since Jesus, Christians are saved by faith because of what Jesus has done for them. The Jews were saved by sacrifice and Christians are now saved by faith in what Jesus has done. Let me tell you the truth. In the time before Jesus, God's chosen people were saved by their faith because of what Jesus would do for them. And in the time since Jesus, God's chosen people are saved by their faith because of what Jesus has done for them. It is faith in God and his grace that is met and fulfilled in Jesus, which saves anyone who is saved and nothing else can save. It is such a powerful salvation that uh, that those people before the time of Jesus didn't even need to know Jesus' name just that God would be faithful to the promises that they were believing in at the time until Christ would come and accomplish that salvation for them. Now, the mistake is common to think, it's called dispensationalism, to say that in one dispensational time frame, God saved and worked in a particular way, and in a brand new dispensational time frame, God works in a different way, and that there's, there's just two totally different things going on. But they are not two totally different things going on. It is all the one storyline. We just enter the storyline at different places upon it. So the mistake is common, and maybe that means it's not stupid, but it's not at all connected with any of the Bible's teaching. Any of the Bible's teaching. It is not even connected with the Old Testament teaching. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. This is in the New Testament. This is one we've already looked at. But it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why would a New Testament Christian person think that the Old Testament people were saved by the sacrifices of bulls and goats? 
The Bible tells us they weren't. Okay. Um, it even says, uh, uh, let me go back to uh, verse 5 there, chapter 10, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Uh, this is actually, this is an Old Testament quote. Uh, the Old Testament is replete with examples of prophets saying, sacrifices are not what God desires. They are what he's commanded, but what God wants is your faith. Your allegiance, a contrite spirit, someone who is authentically uh, repentant of sin and, and rejoicing in God. That is actually, that is the storyline all through the Old Testament. It doesn't change uh, when we get to the New. So what happens to the Old Testament people if the blood of bulls and goats was, wasn't able even then to take away their sin and it's certainly not able now? What happens to the Old Testament people? Well, those, those practices of these sacrifices were there to feed their faith so that they would be confronted with this reality of a holy God and a sinful self uh, and a bridge uh, that requires some radical bridge building to cross. And their faith in a gracious God re- reached its goal in Christ even though they didn't know him by name. One of the interesting things in, uh, through Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, uh, through all of Hebrews really, is uh, just this message again and again that, uh, that the old covenant was deficient in some way and that it's now obsolete. And again, for us, because we come at this stuff and, we, and you know, we read Jesus' teaching and Jesus says, um, you know, you could, you could spin what Jesus says to say something like, don't worry about all that complicated stuff, just love your neighbour. Oh, you know that, that's a nice, you know that that's a that's a lovely, uh, flexible way to live. Um, it, it sounds like Jesus is saying all the Old Testament stuff is too complicated to worry about, kind of not right, certainly out of date. Um, but let's just stick to you know Jesus saying, love your neighbour, um, love your enemy, um, and be gracious and generous, etc. And, and so for us, it's easy to think of the Old Testament as being deficient. It's complicated. It's hard for us to understand. But for these people, uh, the Old Testament was all they had. It was all they had written down. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was all they had to live by and, and go on. And so to say that it's deficient is actually cutting to their core. It's ripping the rug out from underneath them. To what extent was the Old Covenant or the Old Testament deficient? Have a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. It's important that we go only as far as the author tells us we can go. He says, by this, that old arrangement, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. But can you see what he's saying? He's saying, okay, there's a deficiency, the way is not yet opened. But the Holy Spirit is speaking through what they were doing in the Old Testament. God's own Spirit was communicating to his people something in these acts that God had required. The arrangements of the Old Covenant did not save a person, but they were still nevertheless the Holy Spirit communicating to the people about sin and holiness and leading them to draw near to God in his mercy.
There is another difficulty if we suggest that the Old Covenant was deficient to the point of uselessness. Uh, We're saying something pretty profound about God, that God had given for thousands of years a bunch of people a document, all they had to go on, that wasn't actually very useful. And yet I think we have to believe that God in every age has given us something sufficient. He's given us what's sufficient to come to him and know him. Uh, And it's quite clear from, uh, as you read the Old Testament, that God's revelation of himself progresses at times. So Adam and Eve, all they had, they had not, not a single thing written down. They had conversation with God. But their command was essentially, don't eat the fruit. And then also, go and be fruitful. But that was about all they had to go on in terms of clear instruction. And then in time, you know, through, uh, through Moses, etc., it gets expanded on. And then uh, for hundreds of years, there was this whole document of the Old Testament, which was sufficient at the time. And now we have the New Testament. And, and you know, I, I challenge you to read the New Testament and think, oh, yeah, that, that gives me everything I want to know in life. It doesn't, does it? It doesn't give us everything we want to know, but it has given us everything we need to know. At every point as God has revealed himself to people, God has revealed what is sufficient to know him. Uh, and, and in many times, many cases, more than what's sufficient. And so the Old Testament is, is, is not, a deficient document. It's just incomplete. But it's still leading down the same path and and we are lucky to have a more complete document in front of us. Here's another interesting verse in here. 9 verse 10. The old covenant arrangements deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, it occurs to me that if the author of this letter to the Hebrews is saying that because it's food and because it's drink and because it's washings, then it's useless because it's just an act, then he must also be saying something about taking bread and wine and baptism, which we're commanded to do under the New Covenant. Precisely those three things that he lists are precisely the the ongoing ordinances that Jesus has given us uh, to do to be obedient to him, to express our obedience to him and to express our remembrance of what he's done for us. To eat bread periodically, remembering that it's Jesus' sacrifice, his body given for us. To drink wine, uh, representing his blood. And to wash ourselves, this ceremonial washing of baptism, to show what Christ has done for us. So if we were to say that the Old Testament is useless just because it's religious acts, it's physical things instead of heartfelt, authentic, deep, spiritual stuff, then we are making a disconnection that even the New Testament doesn't make. If Jesus is saying, uh, I, want you to follow you with, I want you to follow me with all of your heart and also I want you to wash yourself as a one-off deal to show what I've done for you and I want you to periodically remember what I've done by taking bread and drinking wine, then, then what he's actually teaching us is that there is a connection between what we do in the body and what he communicates to us spiritually. Now, in the same way that killing bulls and shedding their blood didn't save a person, 
eating bread and wine and washing with water doesn't save a person. These things aren't tickets into heaven. But in the same way that killing of blood communicated through God's Holy Spirit something powerful and necessary to a person that they need God's grace, well, in the same way, taking Jesus' body and blood in bread and drink and being washed communicates through God's Spirit something powerful in a way that doesn't, it doesn't get communicated in, in other ways. It is a good thing that he's given us. I just wouldn't want us to scorn the Old Testament stuff and dismiss it as being silly because it's physical or silly because there's blood or silly because it's a temple when really, you know, outdoors is all made by God and we should all be, you know, just more connected and authentic and maybe more spiritual. When God has given us physical ways uh, to connect, to be connected with him. And this is his spirit speaking back then uh, and his spirit speaking to us now. And yet in all of this, there was something that just, it, it was enough for the time, but not enough to, but it, it didn't do what it was communicating we need. It was communicating that we need uh, forgiveness of sins and a blood sacrifice, but it didn't actually do that. It didn't forgive us our sins uh, and the sacrifice uh, was deficient because it was goats and bulls, etc., But Christ has come and he has done all that is needed and he has actually done the thing. He has actually forgiven us our sins and it's complete and it's done and we don't need to do it anymore. Remember that walkthrough? Where you go through, where the priest would go through the first tent, uh, first curtain of the tent, and there's candles on one side and uh, bread on the other, and then through the next curtain, but not really because only one person once a year, and that with blood, is able to go through there. But if you were to go through there, there's the ark of the most, there's the most holy place, and then inside the ark, the unapproachable holy place. Well, Jesus has walked through the holy places for us. Every priest, verses 11 to 13 of chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus has walked through progressively the holy to the most holy place. He shed and bore uh, his own blood, And having entered the sanctuary of the most holy place, not the tent or the temple, but the true tent in heaven, he sat. He didn't retreat to return 12 months later. He sat. And he sits there still and he's taken up residence. Jesus is our great high priest in the true temple in heaven. And he's still there. And he's quite comfortable there, really. He's not afraid he's been accepted and his sacrifice on our behalf has been accepted and that's where he ministers for us for good what has christ given us that the old covenant couldn't give us well he has paid in full the price of our sins the old covenant you could think of it like monopoly money uh, useful for teaching a child The stakes are still high in Monopoly, right? Have you played Monopoly? The stakes are still high. But it's not quite real. 
It's a learning aid. In terms of a reason to live for God, what, is it, what has Christ given us that the old covenant couldn't? Well, in terms of a reason to live for God, he has given us much the same as the old covenant gave, but more. Under the old covenant, the implication was that our sin would cost us our life. And a goat as a substitute for our life and the reality and texture of its blood should serve as a reminder to us of the seriousness of sin and spur us on to love and serve God. Well, if that is a motivator, then in Christ we've been given so much more. How much more the blood of Christ? If the blood of a goat is confronting and challenging and telling us that that is the cost of sin, how much more the blood of God's holy Son? He's given us much the same, but so much more. If the sacrifice of a goat might compel someone to live for God, how much more the sacrifice of God's most holy son? Uh, let's read just to sum up and to, sorry, to, to ground this all in a therefore. What therefore? What does it mean? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Uh, By the way, the rest of the book of Hebrews, especially in chapters 12 and 13, gets very practical about what all this means, therefore. But here's a taste of where we're headed. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Well, that's another comparison that uh, he's just dropped on us all of a sudden. This curtain that tore to make open Uh, the way between the most holy place and the rest of the temple, uh, was like Jesus' flesh, his body. Remember when he died on the cross? It says at the point of his death, the temple temple curtain tore in two. It's like Jesus' body is the curtain, tearing and, and making open that way. The new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the argument runs something like this uh, and and we've it's ground we've already covered uh, that if if there was motivation to live for god under the old covenant the motivation now is greater uh, because jesus the holy one of god has given his life for us He has made the way open for us to run to God. And therefore, since we have confidence to enter these holy places, well, let's draw near with a true heart. And let's not just draw near as individuals in our own private, quiet moment of prayer, but let's grab our mates and our brothers and sisters. Let's stir one another to love and good works. Let's not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Let's encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in every age you have given your people what is at least sufficient to know you and to come near to you. Uh, And we thank you that as we reflect on all that we've been given, uh, we've been given 
uh, so much more than just just enough. Uh, we've been given, uh, in many cases, uh, more than we can even take in. It can be like trying to drink from a fire hose. There is so much. And yet in there too, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's an invitation to grow in maturity uh, and to deepen our understanding. And we ask that you will help us to do that step by step according to where we are in our faith and our walk. But help us to always be drawing closer to you and the knowledge of your word. Help us to always uh, uh, to be cleansed as we understand it more deeply. Help us to be refreshed and empowered to live for you as we understand more helpfully uh, and more personally uh, all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you for the food and the drink and the washings, uh, these tactile things that you've given us. Uh, But these two are shadows. And we thank you uh, all the more for your own son who you really gave and who really gave his own life for us. Help us to draw near to you with confidence into your holy place because of him. Amen.